2013. It's the first episode back of Entertainment Geekly. Listeners, uh, we're back. It's been an exciting off-season. Uh, I'm Darren Franich, and with me, as always, on the phone, straight from his house, to be honest, Entertainment Weekly's Jeff Jensen. No more games, no more kind of funny shenanigans where I'm somewhere in a bunker somewhere on the moon. Let's just, let's just be plain about it. I am sitting in my boring little living room. Jeff, if I had to come up with a tagline for Entertainment Geekly 2013, it would be no more games. We're, we're getting serious now. We're, we're really going to start delving into deeper, weirder, scarier truths about pop culture. Uh, listeners, What you're saying, Darren, is 100% more boring. Exactly. Uh, th- this, this podcast will run three hours, so settle in. Uh, listeners, Jeff and I are both fighting a New Year's, a New Year's Day cold. Unclear where this came from. We're, we're still searching for the outbreak monkey right now. May have come from the Jensen family, apparently. So yeah. pardon, pardon the congested nature, the even more congested nature of, of this podcast. More phlegmatic, more incoherency. Uh, you know, uh, I, 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 uh, this is gonna, th- we're off to a promising start. In short, more of everything you, you, you've come to love. Jeff, before we get too far into this new year, this year that wasn't supposed to happen, the year the Mayans said would never happen, I want to just look back for a second on the year that was, 2012. We talked over so many of the big events that happened during the year. I, I'd love to know, though, let's just like, you know, uh, let's talk a little bit about what was the one thing or series of things that all comprised together one thing that left the biggest impact on you from last year, from our wide and wonderful world of geek culture? Um, you know, there were a couple things that made a, a big impact on me. Uh, most of them kind of happened in the summer. And, uh, and, and, and for me, it was the sort of confluence of, of, of big uh, superhero movies that we saw, especially like uh, The Avengers and The Dark Knight Rises. And, and, and for me, this sort of the, the, one of the lasting ideas among many of, of 2012 was this almost like a, a thematic or stylistic turnover, if you will, uh, um, from sort of like the Christopher Nolan very gritty, very realistic, um, uh, very, very dark uh, treatment of, of, of superhero material, and, and, and the hand, which was very successful and very provocative and very interesting in, in its own right, and not necessarily something I want to see completely go away, um, but how that kind of like uh, seemed to reach sort of like this, this peak and, 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 and hand it over to um, a, an approach to superhero material, which frankly I thought was very refreshing and something that, um, that we haven't seen in a while or at least done very well, which was sort of Joss Whedon's treatment of the Avengers, which was, you know, no less an attempt to be um, realistic um, if you will, um, and, and, and definitely had its, its shades of darkness and grit, but at the same time felt so much more fun and, and so much more poppy, and it was clearly made from a sensibility. I mean, I think Christopher Nolan would be the, the first to admit that he's no, like, superhero aficionado or, or, or comic book geek, if you will. He is first and foremost a, a very serious director, and he's, he's interested in genre material, um, but, but, you know, his sort of communion and his, his take on Batman was very much about, you know, his, his artistic sensibility colliding with that material. But here comes Joss Whedon, who is an unabashed, um, unapologetic comic book guy with, with serious, deep affection uh, for, 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 for superheroes and who loves superheroes for, to, to just be superheroes. I, I loved his, his X-Men comic book series, The Astonishing X-Men. In the very first issue, he kind of emphatically declares he, he repositions and, uh, the, the, uh, the X-Men uh, back to, you know, he, he has them declare, well, let's go back to being superheroes again. And I kind of felt like that sort of like, that kind of idea was, was embodied in, in the Avengers, where he, maybe better than anyone I've ever seen shy of Sam Raimi's first Spider-Man movie, um, just sort of brought this, you know, unapologetic affection for the genre and the material and put it on screen and um, managed to, to, to make it accessible to a lot of people and, uh, and, and really kind of like helped Marvel 
um, you know, the Avengers could have been the moment that where we looked back and said it's the end of the Marvel era. Um, it was the sum total of this sort of great kind of like um, run of Marvel movies, but it has left me looking ahead and wondering where, where Marvel can go from here and, and being really interested in that and really interested in that sort of vibe. So, um, again, like, you know, that for me, like in terms of our the stuff that we talk about in this podcast, was was one of the biggest sort of like like stories of the year, just sort of like the 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 uh, the, the, the sum total, the, the the sort of like closing like statement that Christopher Nolan had on on the genre as a director, um, and which was provocative and cool and interesting and problematic and complicated, and all in, a, in its own right, but existing side by side with. With what, what, what to me felt like a, a a take that I'm I'm excited to see more of. If this all makes sense to you, it, it absolutely makes sense. And uh, what I think is the most interesting aspect of what you're talking about is it feels like you know these are both superhero movies, but anyone can see they're radically different in tone, in style, in what they're trying to accomplish. It's it, it's exciting that, you know, I, I think that as a fan of the genre, it's reached a point where it can kind of encompass all of that. But it's interesting, too, which one thing you said that I think is very apt is this idea of being kind of unapologetic. You know, I, I sort of think that certainly in, in the first decade of what superhero movies uh, became, you know, starting with X-Men, there was this sort of sense of maybe we need to kind of soft pedal the superhero-ness of superheroes. You know, let's put them in black leather. Later on, you kind of had, certainly with Christopher Nolan, this sense of we need to not be whatever Batman was back in the 90s. We need to make it more serious. And obviously, that reaped huge artistic rewards for some people. But it is, I think, interesting that now with Avengers, it feels like, you know, I remember going into Avengers, the concern was, you know, how are they going to make a man, you know, like a robot man and a god and a World War II hero, you know, that just seems like it's a total, um, uh, it's it's going to be a mishmash. And weirdly, the movie really kind of wound up embracing that, you know, like it, it didn't necessarily try to throw them all together in, into a world that made sense. It was just like, yeah, like they're superheroes. This is what they do uh, for work. So it, 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 it's interesting. Now, my question for you, though, Jeff, is do you think that is this sort of, is, is is this kind of a closing of the door on the kind of Nolan-esque, uh, dark, gritty era? Or do you kind of see these two styles coexisting as we go forward? I think that they could coexist. Um, I, I, I don't want to see the end of serious filmmakers. Uh, uh, look, I think what Nolan was trying to do, uh, to, to be honest, and to, is to... Um, I don't think he was trying to say, um, you know, like uh, layer grittiness and realism, so to speak, <laughs> on the genre. I think he was just trying to find a way uh, for Batman, which can be a pretty ridiculous fantasy. Uh, he, he wanted it to make sense to him, you know, and, and feel real to him. And so what he put on screen was his way of trying to... Uh, uh, make Batman and his world feel real and credible and relevant to him. So, um, uh, like, an, I think this is a winning approach. If any, if, if uh, and 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 so any director that sort of engages this material, I I I love. Um, I want them to, to to be committed to that idea of like, how can I make this feel real? Um, what's interesting is that Joss Whedon had a completely different perspective on that, I mm -hmm. think, or at least a slightly different one. Um, I, I don't know actually how to grade it, um, but like you know, he, he had a different approach, and it felt real to him, and it felt it felt real to us. I kind of wonder that there there is some there is a shared idea that both of these movies have, and I wonder if they, in each of their own way, was, was trying to. Uh, uh, put a stake in that idea um, and, and maybe bring an end to this kind of era, which is it's something that you've kind of touched on a little bit with your recent essay about, you know, superheroes and the depiction of superheroes is this sort of dark vengeance driven, vendetta driven, dirty, hairy esque um, vigilante kind of approach to superheroism. And, uh, you know, and, and that was, you know, very much at the heart of, Christopher Nolan's Batman movies. I mean, Batman was very much was was a, a product of of tragedy and um, of of injustice, and his entire career was basically kind of like this 
unending attempt to uh, make right a wrong that he'll never be able to make right in his own life. Yes, yes. Uh, but, kind of, but, but take it out on the criminal element of Gotham City. Um, but that could only take him so far as both a hero and as a person. And so The Dark Knight Rises was just all about basically Batman looking at Bruce Wayne looking at himself in the mirror and saying, hey, this life is kind of untenable for me if I'm <laughs> actually living a life. Um, and so interesting what he did is that he, he, he put down the mask, but he kind of like gave it over to a, a new generation. A, a, a guy that had, you know, in, in the form of Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character, um, spoiler alert, I hope that we're past this point now, but like, you know, a guy who was also touched by tragedy in his past, but seemed to be so much more well-adjusted than Bruce Wayne ever was, and was just more pure, interested purely in the idea of justice, and carrying that forward, and, and sort of wanting just to, you know, be a hero and role model to, to, to people. So it was almost like the, the whole trilogy of, of, of Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy was sort of this sort of, you know, meandering way to sort of sort of recover an old-fashioned pure kind of like, you know, uh, embodiment of heroism that, that, that Joseph Gordon-Levitt could kind of move into. Similarly, what I thought was interesting about the Avengers was that you had this sort of collection of heroes, and of course, what was so entertaining about that movie for the first half of it was that they just didn't, they didn't get along, you know, and they, they, they fought and squabbled with each other, and it was this collision, but what was the sort of the, the, the unifying kind of idea that, that brought them together, which was something that they could avenge, and in the movie, that, that, that uh, so they were, they too were this sort of like vengeance-oriented uh, this uh, band of heroes and this sort of like uh, band of heroes that were united and, and driven by this cause of vengeance. And in, in, in their case, it was the, the death or perceived death of Agent Coulson, right? This guy that, that meant something to all of them. And that got them kind of over themselves and able to work together to, to save us from, you know, hideous alien invasion uh, or, or whatever those things were. But Jeff, Jeff, end, Jeff, how could you forget about the Chitari? They're only the, <laughs> only yeah. o- only only the villains of one of the most successful movies ever made. Isn't that funny? That is kind of one of the, the, the that, that is pretty hilarious. Like, uh, and, and, and it speaks both to something good and obviously bad about that movie. But <laughs> how, how that the last forty five minutes of that movie was just so wildly entertaining and so spectacular, and is like you know. But, like, you know, the villain is just so, like, just just a non... You know, yeah, yeah, I mean, like, like I, I, I would love, and, and, and mind you, I mean, you know, I, I think we both re- really did enjoy the movie, so this, this is not necessarily a jam on it, but I, I would love to sort of ask, like, ten people on the street who saw the movie, who were those space skeletons at the end? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but, but to, to finish, right, exactly. But to finish off the, the, the point there, which was that by the end of The Avengers, it seems that... The, the movie was about sort of then leaving these characters in a place where, um, okay, like, um, you know, why are they even going to be called the Avengers going forward? I mean, I think that, I forget which character in the movie made this point, but like, that's why they call themselves the Avengers, mm-hmm. is, is that their call to action was to avenge something. But the movie seemed to be about bringing them to a place where they could, now they're just going to be a superhero club that can act like superheroes when 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 needed to save the world from things like Thanos or whatever. You mm-hmm. know? So, mm-hmm. Anyway, this is all to say that I'm, you know, one of the ways in which the superhero genre, Hollywood has tried to make superheroes gritty and real and credible to our culture and, 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 and to sort of reflect some sort of big ideas and big themes sociopolitically and that we've been dealing with in our world is, is to sort of like have them embody our, our, our desires for justice after having been wronged in some profound ways, but the dark ways in which we could pursue that kind of wonder if like these two movies this year were efforts to sort of, you know, direct us or, or to ask, can the genre 
you know, uh, you know, be anything more different than that. I mean, yeah, I think I think really what you're touching on is both of these movies in their own way. Um, I, th- I think we're really asking, can the superhero genre, which I, I think at this point is really one of the defining genres of modern Hollywood. I mean, I, I think it's something that when you talk about the 2000s, you'll talk about superheroes the way that you talk about, you know, Westerns in the 1940s or um, war movies in the 1950s or musicals in the 1950s or some other genre in some other time period that I can't really think of right now it, it it feels like they're both kind of asking like you know so you know can is there something more that we can reach for each in their own way I, I think dark knight rises certainly is ambitious in a way that i don't think we ever could have anticipated a superhero movie could be i mean the the sort of dickensian explicit and implicit you know themes a, 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 at work are very interesting and then next to that you have the avengers for some reason when when i think of avengers and i'm i'm i'm, I'm sure I, this i'm i'm not pronouncing his name right, but Borges once said about Casablanca that that yeah I I, I know the listeners I'm I'm totally going there twice over now. Uh, once said about Casablanca that the great thing about that movie is that you get the sense that it's a movie about cliches, but the cliches are talking to each other, and that's kind of what I think of when I think of Avengers. Is like you know each of these characters is maybe two dimensional, maybe two point five dimensional by themselves. I mean you know like I, I, Iron Man and and what Robert Downey Jr. has done with him is certainly a lot of fun. Chris Hemsworth plays Thor really well, Chris Evans. But, you know, at, at, at a certain point, you know, they aren't exactly the deepest characters, which is, of course, why they've been so popular for so long. And Whedon really got the sense of if you put them all in the room together, then something really interesting happens. I mean, to me, like, you know, when, when I think of Dark Knight Rises, I, I think of a lot of the kind of grander scenes, and I think I love a lot of the grander implications. And with Avengers, I really just remember the scenes where they were kind of all in the same room talking, you know? And I, I think that more than anything, that really shows to me just... Um, what a, what a distinctive take Joss Whedon had, and you know what, and, and it, it interested me to see how they will kind of carry that forward. Frankly, it, it makes me concerned that by comparison, Iron Man three and Thor two and Captain America two will seem sort of puny. But I'm I, I'm kind of with you. I mean, like I was not that excited about those movies, and I left Avengers thinking, okay, like I could I could be on board for this next cycle of Marvel M- Marvel movie, uh, you know, cinematic universe. But I, you know, I, I, yeah. But you know what? You're you're, you're also. Uh, I think you raise a good point. One that's getting me thinking here. I, I think that. Um, I think that what the Avengers did was energize me for more. But I think that uh, at a time where I was starting to wonder whether or not how much appetite even I had left for superhero movies. Um, that said, I think this is. You're raising a really good point, which is. You know the success of the Avengers and the kind of entertainment experience that the Avengers offered. How is that going to color and affect our ability to enjoy, you know, an Iron Man movie on its own, a Captain America movie on its own? I, I don't know how many individual stories Iron Man has left. That said, I'm really interested in seeing, like, like what what that team has in store. I think that there might be some more Captain America stories left on the table. Um, given where kind of like that movie left us and what the Avengers didn't didn't uh, cover, um, and you know surprisingly enough, I am really interested in seeing kind of like Thor, if more Thor, if only because of what we've been told about where Thor is going to go. Yo, yo, I'm, I'm, which is which is space, and I kind of as a huge fan of the Marvel universe, um, extraterrestrial kind of like corner of its mythos. Um, the, the promise of going there and then having that segue into the next Avengers movie and Guardians of the Galaxy like I'm just kind of like 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 jazzed for that yeah I'm I'm totally w- with you Jeff I mean it's funny because I, f- I feel like you know we've talked about the kind of next wave of Marvel before and there was a time when Thor sort of interested me like the least of the bunch maybe just because like you know uh, I didn't really enjoy the first Thor movie as much as as I think some people did and yeah the more I read about Thor the Dark World the more I get really really jazzed for it I mean maybe it's just because that's the one which I, I think to us now where we're still a long ways away from seeing any of these movies it sort of seems to me like it has the clearest um, 
the, the clearest eccentricity in a way. I mean, I, I sort of feel like we've reached this interesting point with the Marvel movies, where to a certain extent, they remind me of what Marvel Comics was when I was a kid. You know, you have the team comic book, which is just fun because, you, you know, it gets, all, it gets all the people together. And then you have, they're all off on their solo adventures. And, you know, maybe Thor is being written by Walt Simonson, and it's great. And maybe Iron Man is kind of going through a not-so-good, you know, kind of creative phase at that time. And it, it sort of seems like the, the solo adventures really kind of rise and fall on, you know, are they really distinctive? Are they kind of doing something a little bit different from the others? Or, you know, conversely, my my, my concern about Iron Man 3 is it looks a little bit to me like it's a paint-by-numbers, Iron Man is getting a little bit darker now movie, which, which doesn't really intrigue me as much as space. <laughs> right. But I think that the Avengers has put more pressure on those individual movies to really be successful because those movies, as much as I love the comic book model that you're evoking and comparing them to, you know, like uh, Walter Simonson could have written a bad issue or arc of Thor and the readership will roll with it and we can all shrug it off and, uh, and move into the next storyline and, um, and it could be better and, and we'll continue buying it. The problem with, with, with the movie model, of course, is that these movies are just so expensive and you're just one major flop away from killing the series. So if Iron Man 3 doesn't work, like Marvel, like, you know, you know unlike the comic book model where it's just like, okay, well, let's just try again next month, you know. Right. Um, uh, Marvel Studios, on the other hand, is, has to, you know, has to look at themselves and obviously deal with a media that will all be asking the question, you know, is there any more water left in this rock? Totally, you know, like, totally. So basically, Jeff, what, what, what you're saying is we're, we're probably never going to get to the, the Thor turns into a frog Thor movie. Probably not. Probably <laughs> not. And, 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 and to kind of bring the idea full circle is, is that, you know, the success of the Avengers and putting more pressure on these individual franchises, you know, leads me to wonder if, 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 if these movies don't connect, is the future of the superhero genre really the team-based movie? Because, um, like, maybe what the audience then is going to tell Marvel is that we're just really not interested in these individual franchises anymore after the Avengers. We just, you know, you, you've given us your origin story movies. Now we just want to see all these people together and, uh, and, and, and have that kind of spectacle. Jeff, this all feeds back into what I like to call the Fast Five theorem of Hollywood, which is people don't want to see Vin Diesel, Paul Walker, or The Rock in a movie where they star by themselves, but put them together, box office gold. Box office go. gold. Um, Jeff, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you brought up superhero movies, which, which were such a kind of like huge, gigantic, serious, uh, you know, uh, very clearly influential part of, 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 of the popular culture in 2012. Because what I wanted to talk about, what really kind of left a mark on me this year, were a couple of things more along the margins that each in their own way, I, I, I think, had a lot to say about geek culture and where it kind of is and how it's evolving and, and, and how it might evolve going forward. Um, just uh, over Christmas break, I finally got around to reading Brian K. Vaughn's Saga, which we talked about a long, long time ago. I sort of waited until it was all collected together into a full edition so I could make so I could decide if it was good. Spoiler alert, it's great, naturally. Um, but the interesting thing about Saga, which, for listeners who haven't read it, it's sort of set in this interesting universe that basically mashes together fantasy and science fiction to the extent that there's literally two battling sides, sort of, you know, rebels versus empire, although they're both kind of morally ambiguous. And one side is derived entirely from the world of fantasy. They have horns, they're sort of satyrs, they use magic. And the other side is derived entirely from the world of science fiction. And so it's sort of this interesting half space opera, half Tolkien-esque fantasy. But Brian K. Vaughn, of course, manages to bring it down to a really human level, just great writing, sharp dialogue. He's a genius. We don't need to go too, you know, we don't need to go too far down to the why we love Brian K. Vaughn rabbit hole right now. The interesting thing is it the the thing about Saga, it's sort of ability to unite together so many different aspects of geekery, for lack of a better word, and then tell a story that feels very human and very emotional. It's essentially a story of parenthood. 
Um, it reminded me a little bit of, and I forget if you watch the show, Jeff, but one of the last episodes of Community in its third season, it, it's, it's sort of final Dan Harmon season, um, was digital estate planning. And this is the episode where they go into, the whole episode is basically set inside of a video game. It, it looks like, uh, you know, sort of a late 80s RPG, essentially. It's, it's, yeah. it's more or less a cartoon, but, you know, you know, done in that style. And it's so filled with things that I I tend to be someone who's skeptical of fan service maybe just because as a as a catholic I'm I feel sort of guilty of, of things that I enjoy too much but this is a, an episode of television that on one hand just hit every part of my brain that remembered early Zelda and Breath of Fire and, you know, all those things. And at the same time, it managed to tell a really emotional story about fathers and sons and about, it, it really sort of connected in a way that it almost seemed like it was sort of taking the tapestry of, again, t- t- to use a really vague word, geekery, and tell a story that felt very human. And obviously, you know, community, very low-rated show show that only cool people know about, if I may be so bold. Saga, I think it sold pretty well, but again, you know, we're talking about a sort of off-market comic book at a time when the best-selling comics tend to be Avengers versus X-Men or The Walking Dead. But both in their own way, it felt to me like there was a real pulse to them. You know, I, I, I feel, Jeff, like one sort of running undercurrent of this podcast is this idea that, you know, we're at this time when a lot of things that you and I loved when we were kind of nerdy 12-year-olds has now become very popular. I mean, the idea that I could talk about Iron Man in, in, in mixed company and not be immediately thrown out the window is pretty incredible just to the five-year-old version of me. But as as someone who sort of is still really paying attention to the stuff along the margins, both of these sort of works really kind of excited me. It sort of made me feel as if, you know, far from far from kind of having reached this decadent phase where all we're doing is referencing stuff from 20, 30 years ago, we're almost reaching this new exciting phase where, for lack of a better term, we're, we're breaking through to a new human level of science fiction fantasy. Well, I'm a big fan of, of, of Sega, too, and I think this is the first and maybe only time that I think that anyone will ever hear a comparison uh, in praise of Saga that, that compares Saga to an episode of Community, which I really enjoyed. Um, uh, what I love about Saga is that it, it just really kind of feels like um, Brian K. Vaughan just basically like, you know, emptied out every bit of his imagination onto the page. Um, and, you know, it, that's great st- story, storyteller, very confident in his own voice, you know, taking a tour of, of his own imagination and, and, and sort of summarizing it and synthesizing it into something new and, and, and altogether. All I really love the values that you identified about the series. It's very emotionally resonant um, sci-fi fantasy series. Um, you know, it, it, it's interesting, though. It, 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 like, I, I'm going to bring in a... Uh, a, a, a comparison to a movie that I'm not ready to talk about in an, uh, uh, yet. I think we should tackle in a future podcast here, Darren. But but Django Unchained, which which it feels to me kind of like a Quentin Tarantino kind of thing, where Brian K. Vaughn is communing with all of his references. I mean, when you read Saga, you just hear echoes and you feel connections to all sorts of things that you, you, you may have seen before and may have experienced before, everything from Star Wars to The Lord of the Rings to really sort of artsy, fartsy Russian sci-fi. Um, and, but, 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 but somehow sort of like takes all of those explicit references, distills them into some kind of essential archetypal form, then he puts his own twist on them and combines them together into something that's cohesive and unique and, uh, and really entertaining in its own right, a, a great science fiction fantasy story in its own right, but one that almost seems to be talking about the genre. Um, and uh, and, and, uh, uh, and, 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 yeah, and I just, I, I, I'm very taken with it. It's also a very outrageous book filled with really wild plot turns, some really amazing sight gags, some really like, you know, salty, delicious language, uh, and, uh, 
uh, I, I was, yeah. Um, Absolutely. Well, and, and like, uh, I, I think, you know, it, it's funny because on one hand, you know, uh, what you just said is totally true. There's there's this aspect of Brian K. Vaughn that was also always present in Why the Last Man, which was nominally a more, quote unquote, realistic story than Saga is. If, if nothing else, it's set in a world that is, you know, only a few degrees away from our own as opposed to a million degrees away. But like uh, Why the Last Man, this one is really, has that great sort of almost old-fashioned, you know, every every issue ends on some kind of a cliffhanger and sometimes it's emotional and sometimes it's, oh, look, they're being attacked by a whole new ar- array of monsters that that, that uh, we haven't seen yet, and I like that. But I, I do think that um, what you hit on is what really interests me the most about both of the projects that I brought up, which is I think they both use this whole idea of referentiali- referentiality. Oh, they, they use the whole idea of referencing stuff, Jeff, and they use it in a really interesting way. I mean, I, I, I sort of feel like... There's this sense, and it's hard to say how widespread it is, but that we've reached this point where we're you know 20 years after Quentin Tarantino really kind of defined this sort of artistic method of referencing stuff, of making homages, of, of really digging into genres and reducing them simultaneously reducing them to their bare elements, but then also enriching them to this point of myth. And I think that... There's, for, for, for myself, I, I, I feel sort of skeptical about it sometimes. I mean, there is this sort of sense of, you know, why can't something be original now? And, you know, why, why does everything kind of have to have this sort of layer of mythology and canon to it? And, you know, this, this is something that we'll talk about in the future in 2013, because 2013 actually has an interesting array of interesting, uh, almost kind of old-fashioned, but with a sort of, you know, looking-to-the-future projects, you know, stuff like uh, Guillermo del Toro's Pacific Rim, or uh, Alfonso Cuaron's Gravity, or Neil Blomkamp's Elysium, things that seem as if they are kind of trying to do something new. But at the same time, I I look at something like Saga or something like the Community episode, and it does feel like, in their own way, they're sort of taking the language of referentiality. Oh, God, I I really can't say the word. (laughs) They're they're taking the language of referencing stuff, which is, at this point, a language. I mean, you you think about pop culture now, and, you know, you, you, you look at a character like Abed, who you know, when first introduced, seemed like he was the weirdo. And if anything, his ability to relate everything else to pop culture feels almost like the way that a lot of people approach life now. And it manages to really find something human in them. It, it makes me feel optimistic, maybe. It, it, it makes me feel like, you know, it's not just all going to be one big fan service. Uh, you know, like, 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 like pop culture is, is, is evolving as opposed to devolving. You know, we should probably do the due service here and acknowledge that for a lot of other cultural thinkers and critics, this whole trend, this whole sort of like engagement of culture and production of culture is, is rather alarming. Yes. You know, like uh, um, that all we're basically doing is recycling and uh, our, 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 our references um, that we're sort of lost in this sort of echo chamber of pop culture and, 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 and that concerns me as much as it fascinates me as well. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I mean, I mean, like what you and I have in common, though, is that we relate to it, you know, for better or worse, you know, like we like, like just speaking for myself, um, I feel like uh, I am both uh, hopelessly infatuated with and constantly trying to escape this whole mix of, of, uh, this, this 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 massive pop culture that I've consumed that exists and still exists in my head, um, and so when I see artists sort of like communing with their own references um, and, and 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 using those references to tell stories that are thematically rich and, and all of that, I I feel like I, I feel like they they are doing something that I really recognize and really connect with, um, although I recognize that. Um, 
uh, at the same time, I, I also yearn for, for artists who are going to make art that just kind of responds to real-life experience. Absolutely. Know, like, By comparison, watching The Amazing Spider-Man was, was one of the most depressing experiences of my life for exactly the reason that I think you're kind of getting into, this, this sort of idea of, oh my God, we're, we're really just kind of repeating the same stories over and over again to diminishing returns. Some people like that movie, though, so it's, it's sort of... <laughs> well, it's a good movie, but it's interesting kind of like kind of... Uh, to sort of slightly tangential, to go on a tangent, kind of connect back to like uh, uh, the Avengers versus Dark Knight Rises thing. Spider-Man for me, The Amazing Spider-Man, is a movie that kind of gets lost a little bit, like in in in, in that conversation, because um, and and it's a movie that I think faces an interesting challenge moving forward. I, that, that movie was very successful, and I liked it a lot. Um, but at the same time, it felt like Spider-Man has got to be, even though that you know, Spider-Man is 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 for me the the greatest superhero um, because uh, like, and and he toggles straddles both of those um, uh, 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 tones that we were talking about earlier in the podcast. I mean, here is someone who's, who has got a great origin story and is marked by tragedy. But can you imagine a superhero that more embodies sort of the fun, loving, poppy, you know, you know, superhero guy? I mean, here's a guy who overcame his tragedy, found some kind of like happiness in his life, and like, and and, and there's something that's so exuberant about him. Um, um, but you know, the filmmakers behind this new approach have kind of like really cribbed from Nolan, and 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 really are playing in the shadows of the character. For the, for for the sake of making him feel credible and real, and kind of moving forward, like you know, I want to see more from them. I I, I kind of wonder if, if 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 that franchise won't have. It might be always good, but might not necessarily have the zip and relevancy that I... Absolutely. I mean, I mean, it's funny when you think of... I, 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 I just thought of this, Jeff, and this metaphor may not totally hold, but roll with me on this for a second. Spider-Man, in a way, is almost kind of like a stand-up comedian, where sort of born from tragedy and like, you know, whenever you kind of hear about stand-up comedians, very often their, their actual lives are abject misery and a wide variety of personal problems. And yet somehow as Spider-Man, he manages to express that in ways that are very often hilarious. You know, it, it's sort of his, his sort of creation of, of the persona is a way of not being the guy who's constantly, mo- you know, mourning for Uncle Ben and his murdered parents and every other horrible thing that happens to Peter Parker. Basically, Peter Parker is Louis C.K. is what I'm trying to kind of get, get at here. Spider-Man embodies in his origin story the trajectory that most superhero stories want to milk across the entire lifetime of a series, right? Mm-hmm. Forged by tragedy, goes to a dark place, learns from it, like takes that learning, creates a heroic identity, lives it out for the rest of his life. You know? <laughs> yeah. so the, Bat- the Batman stories... Want, want to sort of keep Bruce Wayne, keep Batman in that dark place and save the sort of like catharsis, one to grow on, reconstruction, happily ever after to whatever degree a superhero can have a happily ever after for that final movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but, but, but Spider-Man, ha- you know, Spider-Man is, is different. He, he, he takes care of all of that in the first movie mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, 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 and the first origin story. And the rest of it is just, you know, fun time stuff. Um, and, uh, but, but we'll see if like the, if, if, if this new approach to, to the Spider-Man movies will, to, to, you know how, how they're gonna kind of. Deal we'll see. That. We'll see. I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure we have plenty, plenty more iterations of a big screen Spider-Man coming our way. Before we go for, forward, you know, I want to kind of like um, kind of add on and build to your point about Saga. There was a comic book that exists on on the fringes here of, of mainstream geek culture uh, that kind of like I had a similar reaction to. That was um, my favorite ongoing series of 2012. Uh, favorite new ongoing series of 2012, which was the Manhattan Projects, 
which was uh, Jonathan, writer Jonathan Hickman, most famous for the Fantastic Four, um, and, and now writing the Avengers over there at Marvel. You know, this is his sort of creator-owned book, and it presents this sort of alternative history of, 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 of physics and science and scientific innovation and the, and, and the big eggheads of the 20th century, Einstein, Oppenheimer, and he kind of like takes all of, all of that history and he kind of recooks it in a very sort of like heightened, outrageous, Tarantino-esque way. <laughs> um, but wh- where he sort of like connects with Vaughn for me and Saga is, is that if you know anything about Hickman's work, he, he, you know, it, 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 it's very rooted in that kind of, you know, in, you could tell that he's very, been in, very impacted. He's been impacted by and very influenced by science and contemporary science and science history and, and all of this stuff. And it's, and it's interesting, interesting to see him take his influences and kind of like turn it into this sort of like outrageously fun and provocative um, uh, 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 self-contained world unto its own. It's been a lot of fun, and and and, and I've really enjoyed. It. I can't wait to see where it goes from here. It's, so now, uh, and, and this is like an, an an ongoing series at this point, not not a mini series. It's sort of uh, op- open ended, but with some kind of closed ended conclusion off in the distance, kind of thing. Yeah, like like uh, I, I'm trying to reboot it all in my mind right now. This is the problem with monthly comics when you read a lot of monthly comics. Like, <laughs> <laughs> kind of forget, forget things, especially when you're as ancient as me. But you know, um, but yeah, the idea is is that you know the Manhattan Project, you know, wasn't just an attempt to sort of create the atomic bomb. It was actually this sort of like secret, like consortium of. Of, of, of scientists that include Einstein and Oppenheimer and Feynman, and, uh, and, and, and they were essentially like creating all these other scientific projects um, and effectively ruling the world, if not the country. They were the true government that, that, that ran things. In fact, they have like this artificial intelligence simulation of FDR that is their president. And, uh, <laughs> And, um, and it's sort of about their ongoing adventures uh, in, in terms of, you know, tracks their origin, but also their legacy and kind of like in their very strange and perhaps awful legacy. Um, and uh, it's, 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 it's outrageous. It's funny. Um, it's pretty smart. Um, and it's, it's really cool. You had me at, at holographic resurrected FDR. That's what I look for in my pop culture, which which actually which which does bring me, Jeff. Uh, we do want to kind of look forward a little bit here. No more looking back, Jeff. We're all about the forward motion at this point. Um, Twenty thirteen just started. All kinds of exciting things happening. All kinds of exciting things we can do. What is your kind of pop culture resolution for this year, Jeff? This can be like macro or micro. Could be you know something you want to do, something you want to watch, something you want to experience. What's what's on your like number one to-do list going into this year? Well, the movie I'm most looking forward to this year is, is Zack Snyder's Man of Steel. Um, you know, I, I, I think that whenever pop culture takes on Superman, um, if you agree, and I think you do, that superheroes say something about our culture and say something maybe about how we think of heroic archetypes and culture in general, um, I think that whenever pop culture takes on Superman, whether it's an, you know, a new approach that we see in comics or whether we see it in the movies. Um, like, they're, they're, it's, 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 it's an opportunity to – it's really interesting. <laughs> and so I'm really, and it's, I'm really interested in seeing what this group of filmmakers, which includes Zack Snyder, but screenwriter David Goyer and producer Christopher Nolan, I'm really interested in seeing kind of like their take on – the, on, on Superman and, 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 and the question that seems to haunt Superman, rightfully or wrongfully, which is how do we make this character relevant? Because he does represent a kind of archety- a superhero archetype that contemporary modern cult, 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 pop culture tells us is just quite frankly not believable. You know, mm-hmm. if we're going to have superheroes, we need them to be sort of dark and complicated and sort of like enthralled to their, to their issues and driven by vengeance. Um, this is sort of like, uh, like a kind of heroism that we can believe in. You know, the, 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 
the, the archetype of, of, of heroism that Superman embodies is this sort of quaint notion that sometimes maybe people do heroic things because they're just good, um, or but they believe in the good and they 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 want to be good, um, um, and they they are not driven by some kind of like twisted pathology. Um, so, um, but we apparently can't really connect with that because it's hard to believe in just the good anymore. That. Or, or, or people are like that, and there's any number of reasons why. Um, so, so relevancy then is an issue that kind of dogs Superman, and I'm really looking forward to seeing how how those filmmakers will tackle that. On the resolution front, um, I have many, many resolutions, but you know, here in, in in my home, I am now staring at the large stack of Doctor Who DVDs that are still in their shrink wrap and have never been watched, despite the fact that I love Tom Baker Doctor Who's at the end, and I love reading everything that we write about Doctor Who, and, 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 and the little bit that I've seen of the current incarnation of Doctor Who on BBC America it just seems so endlessly interesting, and why can't then I find the time to actually start the project of watching Doctor Who? Oh, J- Jeff, you're, you're embarking... You're embarking on a, on a true adventure. Are you going to start from like you, you're starting from the modern adventures with Christopher with like Christopher Eccleston in in 2005, right? You aren't going to go back to the or 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 are you starting with 1960 Doctor Who? <laughs> no. Yeah. I, I, I think I'm going to move one who beyond Eccleston. I'm uh, the, the the new guy whose name I forget, but is... Matt Smith. Matt Smith. Uh, okay, so you're gonna start. Okay, well that's that'll be easier. So I I, I will say, Jeff, I actually managed to finally. Uh, I'm I'm next door neighbors with our resident Whovian, which is what I call English people, uh, Clark Collis, who's written a lot about Doctor Who for us because you know he he speaks their language, Jeff. Um, yes. And uh, he uh, really kind of got me uh, after his great cover story about Doctor Who. He kind of finally got me turned on to it. Uh, starting with Eccleston, it's all on Netflix. And I just devoured five or six seasons of it. I'm still about one season back from the current, but boy, it's it's interesting. And the reason why it's especially interesting, and why I'm looking forward to talking about it uh, with you once you, once you've seen a few a few seasons, is I think in some ways it's really kind of. Uh, my kind of ideal of what great television and great science fiction can be. I mean, every week it's something a little bit new. Every week is almost kind of its own interesting little genre story. But there's also this great kind of ongoing story with the Doctor and his character and his companions. So I think I think that once you finally work your way up to getting started on it, you'll find a lot to really enjoy there. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And especially now that, like... Um that fringe is is ending, and I've been thinking a lot about this lately, and how much I do just like that uh, that kind of model science fiction show that can sort of function um, at that that tells us uh, ongoing story with with big picture character development and character arcs, but week to week basically functions as a sci-fi anthology where. Yep. You know, for lack of a better term, there is some kind of freak of the week or monster of the week or sort of case of the week. But um, my favorite shows, like when I think about my favorite shows, I think about shows that are, are, are able to deal with a wide variety of subjects and have, and as a result, and because of their, their science fiction, because of the different subjects, can, 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 um, can tell stories in different ways from week to week, you know, um, my I, I think my, my, my you know, I, I love Lost, um, but my second favorite, like, television adventure ever um, in my viewing time has been, um, has been The X-Files. And one of my, the favorite, one of my favorite things about The X-Files is, is that, you know, especially when you get into the middle years of the show, um, which, frankly, they're looking for new and different ways to tell their stories, like, really did that. They, 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 they were wild, and they were out there, and they really looked for, they, they just really pushed creativity. Um, and, 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 and Doctor Who, the times that I've watched that, um, seems to be, can be that kind of storytelling vehicle. So I, I'm looking forward to that adventure. I hope that this is the year that I actually take it. Yep, yeah. Well, uh, you will have to keep us posted because, I mean, like, for sure, there's. The, I, 
everything you're saying about it is totally accurate. It, it somehow has this incredible ability. I mean, if, if X-Files did Monster of the Week, then Doctor Who, when it's at its best, it almost feels in a way like it's like World of the Week, you know? Like you're kind of constantly being thrown in. And, you know, the first five minutes of, 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 of every episode are usually quickly establishing a, a few key ground rules. It's almost kind of like, you know, the, the Doctor is... It's similar in some ways to the Fugitive model, I guess, where it is really like each week you're kind of meeting new cast of characters, only a couple recurring people, and each story kind of functions as its own independent little node. Uh, much fun awaits you. Would definitely support you watching that. What's your resolution, Darren? Well, uh, to imitate your model, I, I, I do want to throw out the movie that I'm most looking forward to is Pacific Rim. I love Guillermo del Toro. I've loved uh, the, the past half decade being tantalized by every project he claims to be working on. <laughs> until he suddenly cancels it one month later. I was trying to sort of make a list of everything since The Hobbit that he has that he has been said to be working on. I need to phrase that a little bit inelegantly because it's always unclear, you know, what he's actually doing with it. And, you know, there was a time when he was rebooting The Haunted Mansion and he actually gave a few kind of, you know, great interviews about how he loved the mythology of The Haunted Mansion ride and that kind of fell by the wayside. But Pacific Rim... You know, I, I, I love just sort of this idea of him doing a really old-fashioned monster movie. Something about his movies somehow has the best of both worlds where it definitely feels very, uh, you know, very big budget, very epic, but it has some of the kind of charm and simplicity of a science fiction movie that, you know, would have been something that I watched when I was growing up. So looking forward to that. But my, my resolution, similar to you, I, I feel the need to get caught up. But what I, what I want to get caught up on is... I feel like I've talked and maybe complained so much about modern day geek culture and it's kind of the way it always references everything. It's referentiality. Finally nailed it. Um, and uh, this year, I've, I've made a list that I've just started. I, I want to go back and really read the canon of genre fiction. I want to read Fahrenheit 431, finally. I, I want to read The Cat Who Walks Through Walls. I want to read basically everything Ursula K. Le Guin wrote in the 60s and early 70s. I kind of feel like, I, 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 I feel like, you know, I, I'm so sort of enmeshed in the pop culture of geekery of the last 25 years. And I don't know, there's, there's something in me that, that, that feels this need to, b b b b before I become just an old crank before my time, I'd love to kind of get back into the real roots of everything. So that's kind of... I, that's kind of like what I'm looking to, and I've I've also started this. I also want to read more uh, comic books from from the olden days. So I just picked up a copy of I think it's the Marvel Essentials Warlock with Jim Starlin, and oh, yeah. about 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 three pages in, Warlock runs into some hippies who all have long hair and are all saying, "Oh man, that guy's gold, man!" So I'm I'm very very excited about this experiment that I've begun, Jeff. <laughs> Well, I mean, to kind of work backwards through your list, um, like, uh, like enjoy um, reading through Jim Starlin's Warlock with Sean Howe's uh, marvelous book, uh, Marvel, the Untold Story, like ringing in your head. Absolutely. I mean, uh, that was honestly a big inspiration for this, was just reading it and realizing, oh my God, like, there's there's a real core of great comics here that I have just never read, or that, you know, I, I, I sort of assumed I knew about and didn't realize anything about them, actually. Right. I mean, and, oh, like, the revelation of that book of how, like, guys like Starlin and Steve Gerber, who was doing Howard the Duck and Man Thing, and, and how much the, the internal creative culture at Marvel, um, for better or worse, like, really influenced their work and is actually evident in the work. Um, uh, I, I, I loved that kind of uh, well, inside baseball, to be honest with you, but that 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 kind of enriched the experience. And then into your uh, ambition to sort of reread, you know, the masters, you know, what what a noble endeavor. Uh, <laughs> Aaron, um, Doomed for I, failure is 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 what I hear uh, between your words, Jeff. Oh no, I, I think it's really. Um, 
I think that's it's really smart. And, and in fact, I would encourage you, and I, I, I may, might join, enjoy, uh, join you with this. We, we should start like a reading club. Book club! Our, our, our Cape Town hub. <laughs> uh, and sort of read like a, a book a month or every two months and engage some kind of dialogue about that. Because I think that's really valid. I'm, I'm, there is this... For any number of reasons, I, I've done. I, I am. In, I, I just. I too assert that is a huge blind spot for me. I wish I could say that I actually read a lot of those books that you cited, and yet that whole movement from the early 20th century into the mid-century, how much that really informs like our present-day science fiction and fantasy, and how their struggles. Their sort of conflicts within sort of early geek culture there are still very valid and relevant today. Um, are it, it just it's just really interesting. So um, uh, and it and, and sort of researching a lot of that kind of uh, made me really interested in in, in in reading a lot of that myself. So uh, all right, all right, Jeff, what you're reading, and I might join you with. All right, that. Uh, okay, fine. I think that the first the first step is going to be Robert Heinlein's The Cat Who Walks Through Walls. I don't know anything about it besides the fact that it featured prominently on my science fiction author playing cards that my mom got me when I was about six <laughs> years old. It, it was sort of it was sort of a, a, a form of Uno, but for people who never wanted to have sex. So, um, so, so I know that uh, it's written by Robert Heinlein. I think it references his other books, but I, th- I think it's okay if, if we just dive right in. There may also be a cat who walked through walls in it. I'm not sure if, if that's a metaphor or if that's an actual thing, but that's what I'm going to start reading. So, listeners, if you want to join in on the Entertainment Geekly, Cape Town, Darren and Jeff try to read actual books without pictures, book club, then uh, read Cat Who Walks Through Walls and check back here next month. <laughs> We'll see how far in we've gotten. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. You know, to also kind of comment on your big must-see of um, 2013, Pacific Rim, um, I, I'm a big Guillermo fan myself, and I'm really looking forward to that movie. Um, the one concern I have about it, sight unseen, except for the most recent trailers, is as, as much as, like, I really want to see giant robots through versus giant monsters so much so that Pacific Rim is is one of my top three four five movies I want to see this year I really hope it's a Guillermo del Toro movie too I really hope I feel his persona and his quirkiness and his and his distinctive intelligence uh, ring through uh, you know shine through and I, I want to feel that the first trailer definitely satisfied um, and, and definitely stoked that part of me that wants to see giant robots versus giant monsters where I, what I didn't feel was Guillermo. Yep. Um, yep. I felt like that movie, you know, that, that, that's being advertised could have been made by anybody. Absolutely. So. Well, well, and you know, I, I sort of wonder, you know, Jeff, I'm, I'm, I'm terrible at like, uh, guessing what movies will and won't do well at the box office. I leave that to our experts. Like, uh, you know, our, our box office guru, Grady Smith is great at this, but I, I sort of think, and I'm going to go on the record with this. I would imagine that Pacific Rim is going to be one of those movies where people kind of go and see it opening weekend and give it a bad grade on cinema score because I feel like it's kind of being sold as exactly what you're describing, this sort of big epic thing. And I just, I think it's going to be a little bit weirder than that. I, I, I sort of have enough faith in the del Toro-ness of del Toro, if you will. Um, and I, 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 would, I would expect it, it's... I would expect that people are going to go in expecting a sort of big Independence Day-esque movie, and they're going to be given something different. And they're not going to like that, but I'm going to love it, and then I'll make it a cult hit. <laughs> right. Well, to, <laughs> to be a little more fair to the trailer, you, you did get a small sense of, um, like, like, uh, like of, of, of Del Toro's intelligence um, in that you got you got a peek of how the robots operate, right? Mm-hmm. The idea that uh, that you know it, it, it's barely explained in the trailer, but if you've been following the the, the 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 news and the stuff that they've announced about the movie, you know then that these robots 
are operated by two-man teams that have to go to this academy to learn how to work together, and they're, they're psychically linked together, and um, they have to essentially drive and operate this giant vehicle that is this giant robot in some kind of way, and you, 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 it, it, that, that kind of idea feels very, very idiosyncratic the kind of thing that you would expect from Guillermo, um, you know, like how he actually tried to figure out physically, mechanically, pseudo-scientifically how these machines would be operated and how in figuring that stuff out, he lets that inform what I'm, I'm, I'm suggesting I, I, I suspect will be sources of conflict and, 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 and drama in the movie, like i.e., like how, how do individual operators work together, what kind of conflicts can arise in operating these machines and their kind of relationship. Like, you know, uh, still, nonetheless, I hope that it's stranger than that, I guess is what I'm trying to yep, say. Yep, and- agreed. Listen, Jeff, we can all agree that all we really want out of the movie is for it to do well enough for Hellboy 3 to finally be greenlit. I mean, right? Isn't That's that... Right. absolutely right. That, 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 that <laughs> is um, the, our mission here. That is, that, is, that is Guillermo del Toro's career mission is to become so powerful... So powerful that he can like convince Hollywood to make a movie that, frankly, only you and about several thousand other people. Are <laughs> mainly, mainly me and maybe Guillermo de- del Toro wants to see. I'm, I'm not sure if there's anyone else. That is my life's mission, Jeff. So uh, hopefully, hopefully someday it'll it'll come to pass. Well, we can be the bullwhip for that. We can, <laughs> Let us champion that. Uh, Well, that about wraps us up for this week. But uh, listeners, please check back next week. A lot of fun stuff coming up in 2013. Soon we'll be talking about Fringe. It's coming to an end. We have a lot to say. Jeff, I'm sure you have a lot to say about it. We'll laugh. We'll cry. We'll probably just talk a lot. Um, but eat, eat licorice. Yeah. Some licorice eating will, be, will, will happen. Laughing, crying, and eating licorice is basically what we do here. Uh, as always, I'm Darren Franich. I am Jeff Jensen. Thanks for listening.